Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's new council is being told to push back against the province. A plea for more federal funding to combat mental health issues. Find out why NDP leader Jagmeet Singh recently visited Germany. Ticketmaster says sorry for goofing on Taylor Swift tickets. Thousands of documents about JFK's assassination remain secret. And if you're launching a Christmas shopping spree, think local. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. With a province wanting to do a bunch of different things, whether it is uh, giving mayors strong mayor powers, whether it is expanding the green belts, building more homes, um, uh, evaporating height restrictions in certain communities here in, uh, including here in Hamilton. There are a number of things over the last little while that this provincial government has done. And I would assume that many community uh, residents, participants, councillors, whatnot, uh, whether you're in politics or not, are kind of scratching their head thinking, well, slow, slow the Ford here. Uh, that is the category that our next guest is in. Wayne McPhail is his name. He's a print journalist and online content creator and owner of Wait and See. You can check it out online, w8nc.com. Wayne, good morning. How are you? Hi, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You wrote an excellent opinion piece in the Hamilton Spectator, basically urging the new city council here in Hamilton to push back against the province and say, hey, let's let's slow the roll here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, to, to pick up on the uh, Tears for Fears song you were just playing, you know, certainly Doug Ford wants to rule the world. Um, and I think that the councillors really need to fight back against um, both the provincial government and the developers, uh, particularly around what they're planning for the green belt, what they're planning for boundary expansion, height and increases and cutting people, including councillors, out of the democratic process. Your uh, last couple lines in the article, uh, again, you can check it out on thespec.com. I only hope that the new council, purged of most of the pandering predecessors, will finally have the guts, the collective conscience, and commitment to stand up to the province and to developers, and will speak for common sense, common people, and the common good. I am cautiously optimistic. Where is your optimistic meter? Um, I think right now I'm feeling pretty good about, well, very good about the, the new councillors that have come in. Uh, and and the existing councillors like uh, like Danko and Maureen and Narinder, I think all have demonstrated their interest in making sure that Hamilton grows, but grows in an intelligent way and grows within its boundaries. And I think that the new councillors, I'm thinking like Cameron and Alex Cox and, and Craig, um, all are going to be on board with that. And I certainly, they, I've seen them all at demonstrations around uh, Bill 23 and around the Greenbelt expansion. And uh, I really am optimistic that they're going to fight really strongly. And actually, as I said in the in the editorial, have the guts to stand up to the province in a sort of almost, um, you know, basically saying, no, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to risk our farmland we're not going to risk the livability and the walkability of our communities to serve a goal that only uh, benefits developers and other friends of doug ford strong mayor powers i also mentioned a couple minutes ago where, where do you stand on that is that something that we want to see here in hamilton no, not at all i mean i think and we just saw there was a wonderful sort of it was called a big tent statement about uh bill 2039 around the big uh, uh mayor powers and that that big tent statement was really clear about what people feel about that and also 
you know, five former mayors of Toronto stood up and said yesterday also in an email saying, look, we don't need this mayor power. And, you know, um, we really don't want this to happen in municipalities. So that was like Eggleton, Crombie, Hall, Miller, Sewell all said to Tory, don't take these powers on. And I think that Andrea Horvath has said uh, in the past that she's really more interested in collaboration with the council, not taking away their democratic right to majority rule, which is exactly what this, the uh, the Bill 39, the sort of what they call the Better Municipal Governance Act, would do. Right? Wayne, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for chiming in. Hey, no problem. Bye-bye. That is Wayne McPhail, print journalist, online content creator, owner of Wait and See. I, I get the sense, and Wayne's probably in this boat too, and I wish you had a few more minutes with him, but we don't, that the government is using the housing crisis to implement the plans that it's always wanted to. Like it wasn't that long ago where Premier Doug Ford said, yeah, we got to chew into the green belt here. Like, we've got to build more homes. And then he ended up saying, no, we're not going to touch the green belt. And now they're touching the green belt. And so I just get that sense that this was the plan all along. And now they're like, oh, we got a housing crisis. Well, let's do what we wanted to do all this time. It has caused some fury and some anger in this province, that's for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The uh, Canadian Mental Health Association is calling on the federal government to provide more funding for people who struggle with mental health issues. And we know that bucket is pretty full. You know, whether it's one in three or three in five or whatever the statistic is, we know that a lot of people are struggling with their mental health. And that has only been... Uh, magnified by the ups and downs of the last almost three years now in this pandemic. And so CMHA is now calling on Ottawa to say, hey, we need we need a better plan here. We need more money to address this issue. Sue Phipps is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association Hamilton branch and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sue, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you today? I'm good. So you guys are calling on the federal government to act now to cover mental health care. What do you What do you want to see? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. So the, we are asking the government of Canada to create a permanent Canada mental health and substance use health transfer. So we're calling this uh, Act for Mental Health. So we want to see that in the budget for 2023. So Basically, what we're asking is for universal mental health care. I know that budget consultations have been happening with federal officials. Have have any of your officials or yourself met with uh, dignitaries at the federal government, including perhaps Finance Minister Christopher Freeland, to move this ball forward? So I personally have not, but we definitely are having those conversations, and we're asking for an annual investment of $5.3 billion. Uh, which is just 12%, believe it or not, of total health expenditures. And we're asking actually for 50% of that $5.3 billion to be earmarked for community-based services. So everybody can actually take action by going on to cmha.ca or actformentalhealth.ca to sign this campaign to petition the the Canadian government. So with this $5.3 billion being requested, what would this money be used for? What, how, how would this, how would our country be better in terms of our mental health and, and the services that you're able to offer? Yeah, great question, Rick. So right now, I don't know if people are really that familiar, but we have something in place for universal health care in Canada that we're really proud of called the Canada Health Act. It was formed in 1984, and it is a federal law that covers medically necessary health care. 
However, it doesn't cover a huge range of mental health services that are so necessary uh, for people who are, you know, experiencing mental health and substance use problems. So, for example, it covers uh, physicians in the community and it covers hospital care. But we know, based on evidence, you know, over the last 40 years, um, you know, beyond this Canada Health Act of 1984, that we need all kinds of different services. We need counselling and psychotherapy services to be offered through public health insurance. So in Ontario, that's OHIP. We need, you know, adequate adequate funding that is universally available for community programs and services such as mental illness prevention and mental health promotion, also suicide prevention. We need integrated, publicly funded substance use prevention and treatment services and harm reduction services and housing and income supports. We need our disability income to be increased so people are not living in poverty when they're suffering from mental illness or substance use. And just, you know, in general, intervening, you know, within the justice system so that people who, you know, they're not criminalized for um, mental health and substance use um, problems as well. So we're saving money, you know, both in the hospital system as well as the criminal justice system. And just, you know, doing this and putting this money into community will really actually be like injecting money into the system instead of, you know, taking it away, as some might think, because, it's really going to reduce healthcare costs, you know, reduce hospitalizations, reduce ED visits to do this and increase productivity. So, you know, it's returned to the economy, actually, this money. That's a laundry list, an extensive list of, of needs. Um, are any of those being fulfilled even at, to a certain degree or, or are there complete gaps in what uh, you're hoping to see? So, you know, we do have some funding that comes through our provincial governments to support certain community agencies like Canadian Mental Health Association. And we do have a range of comprehensive services that, you know, we're providing. Um, But we, you know, certainly um, psychotherapy and counselling and many addictions treatment programs, you know, are not covered well. And we are finding that we have huge gaps. Care isn't integrated. It's typically siloed. And, you know, the wait lists are very long. So while some of it may be covered, a lot of it is not accessible or available, you know, and we need it to be free, to be timely and accessible to everyone who's in need. And there are, you know, a million people in Hamilton who currently do not have the care that they need. And as you mentioned, right, through the pandemic, we know that it's become a a nationwide mental health crisis. We have... 37% of people in Canada reporting that their mental health has decreased over the pandemic. So a real need here right now. So we got one more minute. You mentioned more and more people are going to emergency departments. We know what hospitals are going through right now. Um, Are there any statistics on how many people are clogging up ERs uh, with mental health services? So I don't actually have the statistics right now for the hospital um, here in Hamilton, but certainly you're right. Like when people are in crisis, they go to the hospital, they go to eMERGE. Oftentimes they are hospitalized. And these things can be prevented if we have the right supports within the community that are accessible in a timely way. So we know we can support people before they get into crisis. And also after discharge, we can be there for them to help keep them out of hospital again. So Definitely, you know, the pressures are real. We're hearing about them every day. And we really think that this Act for Mental Health campaign with, you know, this 
this Canada Health Act um, turning into a mental health and substance use act, you know, for a health transfer that's, you know, permanent and long-term is really the sustainable way. Sounds like there's a lot of heavy lifting still to come, Sue. Uh, we congratulate you on on uh, pushing this ball forward, and hopefully we can get to the top of the mountain sometime soon. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. That is Sue Phipps, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association Hamilton Branch. You can get more details on this topic at Act for Mental Health. .ca. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of gaps in the system, clearly, that Sue has identified. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Time to time, we have some uh, pretty cool stories on Good Morning Hamilton. And this one is, is in that category. Because it involves an individual who I think is well-liked, even though his political party may not be as liked as he is. I think that's a fair statement. And I'm speaking of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Seems to be a popular politician in this nation. We look at the political map, the political landscape. There's not a lot of orange federally from election to election. So what gives and how to how do they get to that next level as a serious contender for the prime ministerial position? Well, Mr. Singh recently visited Germany, and part of it was to figure out how that nation's NDP party, for lack of a better term, it's it's called something different in Germany, how they rose to power. Kim Wright is the principal and founder of Wright Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Well, what did you make of this visit and the and the nature of Mr. Singh's, I guess, priorities while visiting uh, Germany? So I think it's a couple of really good components. One, understand how his counterparts in other countries have gone from not quite winning to to holding the keys, uh, which I think is important. And part of that learning was really just owning what it is that you're looking to achieve as the as the Prime Minister of Canada, in this case for Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats. How would you go into this? What does what does wins look like? Not just conscience of the nation, but really what is your uh, ethos as a government and how to project that. And given the supply and confidence motion that Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats have passed, they have a lot of things that they can showcase from this minority parliament that they have done, including the new dental care program that will start rolling out in the new year. Uh, These are really important values to Jagmeet Singh. And how do you communicate that out? The other thing, and, and Rick, listeners will hear, have heard me say this in the past, but you're running to be the leader of a G7 nation. How do you play on the world stage? How do you engage? How do you show up? Uh, because there are very significant challenges in you know with the war in Ukraine, uh, with uh, geopolitics, with the global economy. So showcasing Jagmeet Singh's natural you know, effervescence, if you will, but leadership on that world stage is really important. So those two things were critical as part of this, uh, his adventure to Germany. That uh, international uh, experience, if you will, it's something that you really can't showcase to a great degree unless you are the prime minister, though. It, it is true. It's harder to do, but going overseas, talking to counterparts in other countries, learning the world experience. So you're not just showing up at a G7 conference and going, hi, I'm the prime minister, take my picture. But what does that work look like? How do you learn from what is happening in other experiences around the world? And I think it's an important thing for all leaders 
uh, of various political parties to showcase who you want to be not only as the Prime Minister of Canada, but that leader of a G7 country that has a, a significant role to play. We're talking about NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's recent trip to Germany to learn at the end of the day how to become a better leader and may, maybe perhaps the next leader of this country. Kim Wright is our guest, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Mr. Singh has been the leader of the NDP now for a few years. He's had a couple of federal elections under his belt. Is he and the party at least trending in the right direction? Yeah, what we saw a lot of in the last election were areas that aren't traditional New Democrat territories. And look, Hamilton, uh, New Democrats have always done well in uh, either first or second. In places that are less traditional New Democrat territory, they were really starting to make inroads into look at Renfrew, Nipissing, Pembroke up in the Ottawa Valley, not New Democrat fertile ground generally, but they started to really uh, showcase the candidates that they can run and came in a strong second there uh, to the longstanding conservative. So we're, we're seeing those less traditional uh, change in population, change in conversations. So how does Jagmeet Singh capitalize on that and win those seats and win government and that's it's it it sounds like you should be a political party looking to win i'll have to be honest it's not always been the the priority of new democrats to win the government uh but certainly that is the priority of jagmeet singh going into this next federal election whenever it might get called the way that it has proceeded, the deal with the Trudeau Liberals uh, that uh, Mr. Singh uh, was obviously on side with, come the next federal election, is that going to be is that deal going to be beneficial to him and the NDP? Or is there going to be a little bit of blowback there? I think what we're seeing now, now that some of these items, like the dental care program, like taking HST uh, off of certain items. Some of those uh, really bread and butter New Democrat issues, but also that, frankly, have significantly helped Canadians. If the New Democrats can showcase that this was their work uh, in this minority parliament, then I think they have this opportunity to run on those on those issues. That they've kept the government to account. They have moved forward with actual legislation that has helped better Canadians' lives. If they communicate that message out, I think that they have a, a very good shot at this. Um, and I think we're seeing we're going to start to see some of that continue to roll out uh, as we get into the federal budget cycle and into the broader broader conversation. If they just let the liberal sort of liberals and 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 the conservatives fight it out over, you know, who has better this, that, or the other, they're going to get lost in the conversation. But showcasing to Canadians that you sent us back to Parliament to get things done that will help Canadians in tough times, here we are, here's what we've done, and when we have the keys to 24 Sussex, this is what we can do, here's what our ministers look like, and here's what our priorities are, and they match the priorities of Canadians. That's where I think will be the sweet spot for Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats. It's going to be fun to watch, that is for sure. Kim, always appreciate your time. Thanks for the time today and enjoy your day. Thank you. You as well. That is Kim Wright, principal and founder, Wright Strategies, breaking down the uh, recent visits by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to Germany to learn how to become, well, just a better leader and how how the German version of the NDP party rose to power. should be interesting to see what kind of 
initiatives and intricacies that he takes away from that experience and employs them into his own presence here in this country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The song that Swifties are singing when they think about Ticketmaster. There is some bad blood between the two sides. So much so the Ticketmaster has apologized for the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco, which spurned a visceral reaction from fans and the superstar herself. So what, if anything, will come of this? Well, if you're not familiar with this story, last week Ticketmaster canceled the public sale of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour after it sold more than 2 million tickets during pre-sales for the event, which obviously left many fans upset and angry. The, the site crashed, they couldn't get in, you know, the world was coming to an end, we could not get our tickets for Taylor Swift. Not a good look. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. Eric, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I, I mean, uh, how am I? I'm pretty amazing because I don't have to mortgage my house for tickets yet. <laughs> yet. What yet. is happening? So tickets- what is happening with Ticketmaster? How can they? How can this happen in 2022? Um, it's actually pretty easy. Um, Ticketmaster gave out two million codes to verified fans, and that that's their kind of in-house system that tries to prove that these are real human beings that are um, that are trying to get tickets. But fourteen million people all came onto the site within an hour trying to get tickets. So a lot of people were on the site trying to get tickets that really shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, I don't know about you, but if you know, your radio station or my website had 14 million hits, it would probably crash just the same. So a large part of it has to do with the sheer amount of people who want to get tickets for the show. But I think part of the blame has to go, looking back on it, really a little bit has to go back on Taylor Swift. Maybe it wasn't so much of a smart idea to have 53 shows of the same high in-demand tour going on at the same time. But that's hindsight is 2020. But this is what happens when you have pretty much, you know, the biggest tour of the last 15, 20 years um, happening. And every single person, it seems like in the free world, wants a ticket to it. Ticketmaster blamed unprecedented traffic on the site. And part of that was due to bots. Do you buy that aspect of it? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I just don't believe that there are that many bots that are trying to get tickets for anything. I think it just comes down to the fact that this is, uh, um, that there's a lot of there's a lot of fans who want to go, but yeah, you know, Ticketmaster can bl- if they blame bots for it. Sure, I'll take that at face value. What I think it really comes down to is that you know, real fans are having a lot of trouble getting tickets for a limited supply product, and when that happens, prices start to go up. People start blaming Ticketmaster when that's not even the right call. The artist dictates the price. The only fees that go to the venue and Ticketmaster are their fees that are tackled at the end of it. If people are complaining that tickets are $3,000 or $4,000 on Ticketmaster thanks to surge pricing or popular pricing, um, all of that money goes to the artist. So, you know, Ticketmaster is just really a front for to take the blame off of and take the heat off of the artist in the first place. Always has been and always will. Eric, we've got one more minute. Will this fiasco lead to more competition for Ticketmaster or or a change at Ticketmaster? Zero. 
the politicians are going to bluster. They're all going to want their time in the spotlight, trying to break up through antitrust regulation, the Ticketmaster and the promoter Live Nation that is responsible for booking the artists in the first place. But it's a long, long, long road for that to happen. It's almost impossible to break up a company in the U.S., and I don't expect that to change. For more on this and other great uh, music-related stories, you can head over to Eric's website, thatericalper.com. Eric, always appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you loan me $6,000 for tickets? I'm a little short. I'll get you next time. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator, thatericalper.com. My, oh, my, not a good look for Ticketmaster. You have all these tickets. You have a a window to sell it with these pre-sales. And 14 million people log on? Wow. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, nearly 60 years after the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, thousands of documents related to the event remain classified despite efforts to make them public. On this 59th anniversary of JFK's death, Are we any closer to knowing who was behind the shooting that felled America's 35th and youngest ever president? Well, here to talk about it is Phil Shannon. He's a former Washington and foreign correspondent for The New York Times and the author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Phil, how are you? Great, Rick. Thanks for having me. First off, weren't these documents supposed to be declassified years ago? They were. Everything was supposed to be declassified in 2017, which was the 25th anniversary of a law that was supposed to declassify everything. And that was a law that was prompted by Oliver Stone's, you know, conspiracy-soaked movie JFK the year before. So does the FBI and the CIA, I know those are two of the, the government agencies who are withholding these documents or preventing them from being released, do they have good reason to keep these files a secret? Well, we can. I can tell you what they say are their reasons. Whether they're good or not, really can't we? We can't know until we actually see the documents. But in the case of the CIA and the FBI, which are the source of most of these documents, the argument is that there are people named in these documents, informants or uh, or other sources of information, who, if their identities became known, uh, that they might be in some sort of danger or they might be subject of intimidation. But of course, these are people from you know, informants from the 1960s. These would be people would be very old, if not close to death. Uh, you wrote a fantastic article in Political Magazine where you wrote that some of the documents are supposed to be made public next month. Will that happen? And if so, what could we potentially see? Apparently, there, there will be a, a, a good amount of new information on December 15th, which is the deadline set by President Biden. Uh, we won't know until December 15th. Uh, President Biden... Um, is the only person at this point under the law who can block the release of these documents, the continuing continuing control of the documents within the government. And his written order, the one that will release some documents in December, seems to leave open the possibility that there are some secrets the government may keep indefinitely, if not forever. On this 59th anniversary of JFK's assassination, we're in discussion with Phil Shannon, a former Washington and foreign correspondent for The New York Times, also the author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, The History, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Uh, You mentioned in the article as well, there's recorded interviews of the president's wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, which are not expected to be released for like 50 more years. What can you tell us about those tapes? 
But this this 1992 law that forced the release of documents left some exceptions. And one of them was for um, certain information that was given to the government by deed uh, with special instructions that it be withheld. And uh, among, there are about 500 items that fit that, are in that category. And these, uh, among them are 10 tape recordings uh, that were done by the author William Manchester in 1964 when he was writing his big book, The Death of a President. And six of those are with Jacqueline Kennedy. And Manchester later wrote in his own memoirs that they were the most wrenching interviews he did for his book, and that during these these 10 hours, Mrs. Kennedy talked in great detail about the days before and after the assassination, as well as describing what it was like to be in the limousine that day. Wow. Um, whether or not we have to wait until 2067, I think, is the year or not, do you, do you think we're ever going to know the full details of the assassination, including more details about Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, and, and whether or not the mob, the Russians, the Cubans were involved? Well, I think all of the most credible evidence points to Lee Harvey Oswald as the shooter in Dealey Plaza, and almost certainly the sole shooter. But there are lots of questions about whether or not Oswald told other people he was going to kill the president, and whether he got help in organizing his plot to kill the president. And we have some new information out of the declassified documents we've seen since the 1990s to suggest that Oswald did tell other people what he was going to do and that he may have received help. But in terms of ultimate answers, I think it's uh, we'll, we'll never have ultimate answers because if there were really if there were bombshell documents, they were they may well have been destroyed many years ago. You've done extensive research on this, obviously. What, what do you think happened? What what spurred this individual to go forth with this? Well, Oswald was, you know, he was a delusional loner. He was a misfit. He, um, you know, believed in his own mind that he was some sort of secret agent. He was a, a self-declared Marxist. He'd been a self-declared Marxist since he was 17 years old. Uh, you know, he once tried to defect to the Soviet Union. Much of my book and much of my research in recent years involves this very mysterious trip that Oswald uh, pays to Mexico City just several weeks before the assassination where we know from the declassified files we've seen since the 1990s, where we know he's meeting with Cuban spies and Russian spies, including a KGB assassination expert. And uh, I'm hoping that some of these documents we'll see in December will involve this mysterious trip to Mexico City. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch and follow along. It has been for nearly six decades, and I'm certain that uh, the months and the years ahead will certainly uh, boost our anticipation and uh, hopefully quell some of those conspiracy theories that remain out there. Phil, really appreciate your time uh, today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Phil Shannon, a former Washington and foreign correspondent for The New York Times and the author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, the secret history of the Kennedy assassination. And if you have some time to check out his uh, article in Politico magazine, it is extraordinarily, really breaks down what agencies like the CIA, uh, the FBI, the DEA are trying to keep under wraps. And as we discussed, uh, because there's people still alive that are tied to this event, whether they are informants or they're uh, government officials, uh, maybe former FBI agents, uh, these agencies don't want this information out there because they could be compromised if, if this information is released.
there is a deadline of December 15th, so about, eh, less, well, obviously less than a month, three weeks away, in which the uh, National Archives in the U.S. is r- really undergoing a negotiation process with the CIA and other agencies to ultimately convince them to release some of these classified materials. There's about 15,000 documents, including 250 that are fully redacted. I mean, you, you look at the, if, if you were able to look at the page, they were just completely black. Everything is blacked out. And so now archives officials and others in the government are cautioning the public, even if December 15th rolls around, not to expect any bombshells, as Phil alluded to as well, in the uh, still classified documents. So that'll be an interesting day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you are on the naughty list, you still got time. Still got time to get on the nice list. Uh, Speaking of naughty and nice list, you probably have a Christmas shopping list that you want to tackle. And there are some, well, some trends this year that may be a little bit different than in past years. And one of those, of course, it should be each and every year, that we want to support local businesses at this time, especially throughout the year. And, of course, during the Christmas shopping season, because it is vital to businesses, especially those mom and pop shops, the small businesses, to make it through another year. Christy Miller is the founder and CEO of The Scented Market and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Christy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me this morning. I hear that you were recently on Dragon's Den and fared pretty well. Yes, it's true. Last Thursday, we were on the season finale and boy, oh boy, did I slay those dragons. (laughs) How'd you make out? Uh, really good. We I had five offers from all six dragons, and I really had to stop and pause and take a moment. But I ended up going with uh, Arlene Dickinson and Michelle Romano for $250,000 for 15% of my business. Wow, that is amazing. Good for you. Congratulations. That's awesome. Two great partners, I'm sure, will uh, bring the scented market to another level. So good good on you. When it comes, yes, thank you. When it comes to small business, especially at this time of the year, how crucial is it for you to make those sales and get more feet in the door and more people on your website? Yeah, typically um, small businesses do about 75% of their retail sales between the months of October through to December. So we really have to grind hard. And I always tell uh, my family, my team, we don't sleep until January. We go, go, go. (laughs) (laughs) What are the hot shopping trends that consumers should be tapping into? I feel like nowadays it's really about self-care and being, being able to bring products into your home and enjoy a moment for yourself. So right now we're seeing a huge trend with our winter collection candles, but also little stocking stuffer ideas such as mini bath bombs, little mini scented hand sanitizers, and lip gloss are always a popular stocking stuffer this year. Yeah, absolutely. We know that uh, high inflation is a thing. Is the scented market and other local stores able to absorb that and still offer some great deals? We're definitely trying to absorb a lot of the co- a lot of the uh, costs, and we can make everything. So for small businesses across the country, it's really hard because you're trying to support local people in your community who you hire and you want to pay at a living wage and balance uh, balance the being able to make a profit and live your life. But we're seeing right now that 75% of Canadians shop online since January 2020. So really, your online website needs to be up and at them and running, and we're really feeling that purchases are coming from a mobile phone device this year as opposed to a computer or an iPad. 
That is interesting. We're talking to Christy Miller, the founder and CEO of The Scented Market. Check them out online at thescentedmarket.ca and how the Christmas shopping season is massive for local businesses, especially. We also know, you know, aside from the inflation thing, that a recession is looming. Could this be the most important Christmas shopping season since the start of the pandemic? Absolutely, it can for sure. And you know what? It's always wise to shop early to avoid any kind of disappointment and make sure you get the gifts that you want. But also taking the time out of your day, even if it's for five minutes, to search up a local business in your community and reach out to them. Because typically, every time you make a purchase from a local business, that owner is doing a small happy dance. Absolutely. Christy, you are doing a happy dance today because not only do you have a great deal from Dragon's Den, but you have a great product and a great website. Uh, Congratulations and all the best in this Christmas shopping season. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Rick. That's Christy Miller, founder and CEO of The Scented Market. You can find out more details about their products online at thescentedmarket.ca. So if you're into candles and bath bombs, she was describing this is definitely the store that you want to go to and there's so many more like it here in uh, the hamilton burlington uh, greater toronto area thanks for listening to the good morning hamilton podcast you can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com the good morning hamilton podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast i'm rick samprin thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe Subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.